0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to our recently launched Substack, the Planet Microcap newsletter for free at microcapnewsletter.substack.com. I'll be sharing all recent podcast episodes from Planet Microcap and due diligence. Plus every Sunday, I put out our weekly Microcap wrap to show how the Microcap space has performed every week and compared to the broader market based on data from the microcap review index. So again, to subscribe, please go to microcapnewsletter.substack.com. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I invited on frequent guests and friends of the show, Jason Hirschman from Hudson 215 Capital, your own Namark from One Main Capital, and Josh Young from Bison Interest. If you've been following microcap performance for 2022, it's been uh nothing short of a a bloodbath. Uh, Data from the microcap review index shows that the space is down approximately 27% since the new year. Awesome. Uh, I wanted to make sense of this with three of the best minds in the game today. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 234 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Jason, Yaron, and Josh. streamrg.co backslash pmc that's s t r e a m r g.co backslash pmc welcome back everyone to the planet microcap podcast i'm your host robert Kraft. you can follow me on twitter at bobby k Kraft. that's b o b b y k k r a f t and joining me today are uh three folks that I, I have immense respect for and i'm so excited that they're here to kind of you know Kind of talk a little bit about what this first half of 2022 has been like for microcaps and and otherwise. And, you know, I, I don't know if we're gonna turn it into a therapy session, you know we'll, we'll we'll kind of see where it goes. you know, but uh, with that, I'm really excited to uh, to be joining me today. We got Josh Young from Bison Interest. We have Jason Hirschman from Hudson Two One Five Capital or Hudson Two Fifteen. I always do Two One Five. I don't know. I'm in LA, it's, so
1: Eight One Eight. You know the, the you know the whole thing. No problem. No problem, Bobby. Uh,
0: all right, and then we also got your own name, Mark from One Main Capital. What's up, your own? Yep. And uh, thanks, guys. It's good to have you here.
2: Great to, you. to be here.
0: So as I as I. St- said in this quick little intro here, you know, we're going to be kind of wrapping on the first half of 2022, you know, let's start specifically in microcaps. And then if, you know, I'm sure it'll quickly diverge into, you know, beyond that, but, you know, at least to start um, it's been a, it's been a rough go. Uh we we published uh from our on the on our newsletter, the microcab newsletter, which you can subscribe to, microcab newsletter.subtack.com for free. Um, some recent data on new constituents, how the index has performed, and uh it's been a bloodbath. Let's just call it like it is. Um, so I mean, I figured let, let's let's like to hear how everyone's experience has been in that regard. So your own you know how's it, how's it going man and you know, how's it been for you in the last in this first half and what have you been seeing you know what are some reasons why like uh you know you're usually pretty good at giving like the kind of big picture look at what's going on so
2: yeah look kind of- i think we came, we came into the year with stocks reasonably valued i don't think they were cheap i don't think they were expensive i think you know the prospects for economic growth were relatively good uh there were some rumblings of inflation starting to pick up but I think everyone was of the view, or you know, I was, and I think a lot of others were of the view that inflation was still hopefully on the cusp of transitory, meaning supply chains, which had been jammed up coming out of COVID, were, would hopefully kind of um, you know get some WD forty in them and 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 stop squeaking, and you know, people who uh, got a lot of stimulus uh, funds would go back to work, and uh, and so the supply picture would get better. And the demand would be relatively stable to good over you know over the course of the year. I think um, that environment very quickly morphed, uh, you know, closer to the end of Q1, but throughout the year, where I think it's become you know very clear that um, inflation is not as transitory as people thought it was. Doesn't mean it's not going to roll eventually, um, but you know, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. That didn't help obviously with fertilizer and, 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 and food and energy prices, um, you know, demand for energy globally as, you know, the world reopened, um, you know, has kind of returned to its growth uh, trajectory that it was on pre-COVID while supply on the energy front is not reco- fully recovered. Um, and then, you know, the people haven't come back to work to the same degree as as everyone thought they would. So um, inflation has picked up, you know, and that's caused the Fed to uh, have to tighten financial conditions pretty dramatically here in the first half of the year. Um, And the tightening of financial conditions is bad for all risk assets. Um, At the same time, you know, the outlook for inflation is is also bad for earnings, right? Um, When you have um, the Fed tightening, that's generally bad for demand. That's how, you know, they're trying to tame inflation. But, you know, supply also is still constrained. And so if you have tightening of of demand conditions, while at the same time, all your costs are going up, that's a stagflationary environment and it's really not good for earnings. So, um, you know, higher rates, not good for multiples, um, stagflationary environment, not good for earnings. And I think in general, market participants have just shifted to a risk off mood and, you know, and it's it's uh, it's definitely under understandable why people don't feel that confident to invest in risk assets right now. But I will just highlight that, um, you know, we've gone from, you know, my view being fairly reasonably valued to pretty cheap in a lot of pockets of the market. And it's rare that you're able to buy things for cheap uh, when there isn't a lot to worry about. So yes, there's a lot to worry about. It's rare that you, you know, it's, it's pretty much, never that you're able to buy, you know, lots of things for cheap when there's nothing to worry about. That's when things are cheap. And I think if you have, a, you know, an investment horizon of more than uh, two months or six months or eight months, I think this is when you need to be buying assets. I'm not saying you need to be all in or, you know, or, or levering up here. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think that, you know, people who are calling for going to all cash, um, you know, you, you might get one of those calls right once over the course of your life but you might not and you might forego a lot of gains if you try to kind of get in and out every time you think um you know things are going to be tough um you know you're not going to always get it right and i think over time it's proven that if you buy things on the cheap and you have a time horizon to wait it out you're going to do well that's kind of my summary
0: oh your really appreciate that full summary you know th- let me cut to you jason real quick and uh you know what 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 has been some of your reaction you know maybe bouncing off of some of what your own just said
1: I mean, own did a fantastic job, I think, looking at a lot of the factors that are uh, affecting the microcap investing and really all investing right now. Um, just a, a few things that, to add on. I mean, first of all, as microcap investors, we should be used to misery from time to time. It just, it just comes with the territory, right? If you can't take that kind of punch once in a while, then this isn't the place for you, right? Uh, I think Bobby's his face is turning so red, it's almost like he can feel it. He's, he's a microcap investor at heart, right? He can just think of the punch and he really just starts feeling it oh, um, really. you know, but, but I feel, I, I, feel it,
0: I feel it for everybody you know.
1: you feel no, it definitely. for everybody you feel it for everybody right uh, on the other hand it's 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 not that tough because misery loves company right and a lot of investors are down right now so uh, in some ways you know we compare ourselves to each other and if everybody's down 20 25 30 percent it's not you know, except for Josh who, who uh, is investing in oil and gas is probably up thousand percent or something like that but uh, you know, the rest of us, mere humans, are, don't have that that uh, that 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 benefit right now. Uh, I would say part of the problem is, though being a microcap investor right now, is that if you look at, at you know large mega cap names, you look at the Amazons, you look at the Googles, right? They're down too, right? So you, know, you start asking yourself, like, or other investors may ask themselves, am I getting sufficiently compensated for the extra risk of playing down in this you know microcap land? Right. And, and so, you know, all assets are starting to re-rate as interest rates go up and and things, you know, get a little more challenging and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting times. I mean, it's a terrible time if you have to sell today, but if you have any kind of cash, or if you want to just upgrade your portfolio by just getting rid of some of your weaker names, it's a great time. Right. Uh, So that's the way you got to look at it. I think you got to be a little bit more optimistic and say, this is the time to, uh, you know, to trade in your Hyundai and upgrade to a BMW right? You're not really paying that much of a premium. So that's the way I look at it. Absolutely.
0: All right. So I want to, I want to get Josh's take, and then we'll dig into some, uh, a little more of what you and your own also said. So Josh, you know, from your perspective, how has it been for you in this first half of 2022?
3: Well, uh, the, the very end of the first half was quite painful and undid a lot of the gains from being exposed to oil and gas. Um, you know, I just looked the, on a one month basis as of right now, XOP, the mid cap index for the mid cap ETF is down about 25%. So just over the last, uh, trailing 30 days. Um, so it's been, uh, <laughs> it's been a month and, uh, uh, you know, that, that last little bit, there's been just incredible volatility and craziness and a lot of like, so, uh, your own walk through some of the setup that I've spent years trying to convince people of, and now it's sort of more of like a known narrative of there being sort of insufficient supply over time while demand has sort of continued to increase. And so it's an interesting world to be in where this sort of long-term thesis is somewhat understood, at least among sort of more sophisticated and knowledgeable investors. Um, But at the same time, there's kind of this uh, disbelief in terms of it being a real factor that would play out similarly to how it's played out historically, where historically when there have been many years of underinvestment for oil and gas, there's been many years of recovery and there's this just sort of presumption of, oh, hey, there were like seven bad years and six good months. And so that's it. And it's like, well, that's just not, you you, you end a cycle through through oversupply. You don't end the cycle through prices being high for a minute or a month or six months. And so uh, there was this great uh, Peter Lynch quote uh, as a follow-up to what Yaron said, where uh, far more money has been lost by investors trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in all the corrections combined. And so it's very hard, I think, to sort of keep your head when there's craziness going on. And I guess, unfortunately, I have a lot of experience with this where oil, I mean, basically oil and gas stocks went one direction for six years, which was down. So, you know, we named the firm after for a bison, we sort of face into the storm. And I think it's just really hard to stay cool and collected and proceed analytically. Uh, but like Jason was saying, I think, down and your own downturns are great opportunities to be able to find opportunities, high grade portfolios, deploy risk capital, and it's not really anyone that says they can time a bottom or whatever. I mean, no one, no one can. Even I read this thing. Uh, two more thoughts. One, I read this thing about uh, Jim Simons, the founder of Renaissance, and apparently in two thousand and seven, when all the quant firms were blowing up, there was this sort of quant Um he came in and overrode his computer signals and a whole bunch of his like scientists got mad at him. And he said, look, I'm the, it's my firm. And we're, we're selling. They, they thought they should buy and they sold and they survived and did very well. And so I think, I think there's a certain pragmatism and a certain ability to sort of sort um, of you know, see through whatever it is that the narratives are and be able to sort of take a longer term, uh, more measured view. And then uh, for oil and gas, specifically for small caps and micro caps, it's the divergence in between small and micro cap performance and mid and large cap is wild. And it's actually one of the interesting things. I mean, apparently this has been going on across the board and it was just, things were terrible for oil and gas in general. So it didn't matter if you were big or small for a number of years. Um, but in this recovery, the PSCE small cap index is still down like 80% from its high from 2014, while XOP is down, uh, now I'm not sure, but like a m- as of a month ago, it was down, let's say 50% or so, and XLE was down like 30%. So there's a huge divergence in trailing return uh, for the small caps in oil and gas. So here you had some supposedly this big, powerful bull thesis, you had supposedly all this money coming in and sort of chasing it. And then you had a valuation divergence, the biggest maybe ever for the sector, but specifically on the big versus small, where the big guys were at, let's say, four or five or six times EBITDA and the smaller companies were at closer to two times EBITDA. So very interesting, big divergence, relevant for the small and micro cap cl- uh, crowd. And you know, really like when you see a sector working or not working, either way, you can sometimes see these sort of divergences that tell you a whole area is interesting. And one of my takeaways from it is that there's something going on and I'd love to get everyone else's perspective, but it's worth highlighting. There's something going on that's driving And maybe many things, but there's something going on that's driving valuations for small and micro caps materially lower than they should be, even in sectors where you're really valued based on your assets and the cash flow from those assets. So, you know, for oil and gas in particular, it shouldn't be as much. And it's there's this very wide performance and valuation divergence. So that's that's what's been going on beyond just oil prices and gas prices going up a lot and then down a lot recently.
0: I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, Interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. Can we, I want to go on that question. I think that's a really good place to continue to to go off of there, Josh. So, I mean, Jason, your own, do do you have some thoughts on, on what the last part having to do with, you know, what is potentially driving Are there other factors that are driving this? Real material change and 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 devaluation of some of these small micro caps.
1: I don't
2: have the stats in front of me, but it, you know, there's there's definitely been a secular shift from active to passive, um, and passive favors larger market caps. You know, when people decide to put their entire 401k into the S and P 500, you know that that that's money that's going into Apple and Google and Microsoft. That's not going into small caps and active managers have been losing share over time. And those are the guys who really like to, you know, hunt in smaller, less followed names. And then they're also less liquid. You know, they tend to be less profitable. They're not buying back stock. So, you know, if if 10% of the people in the world who own Apple stock decide to sell it for some reason, Apple's there kind of giving them the cash and taking the shares from them, smaller companies in general, are you know not making cash and burning cash and need to access capital markets? They rightfully so have a higher cost of capital. There's less business diversification, less customer diversification, less supplier diversification. So their cost of capital is higher. Number one and number two, you know, when people decide to pull money out of the market, there's no one there, you know, with a bid. So it's um, just less liquid and it's more likely to go down faster and and you know kind of more
1: viciously. Yeah, I would really uh, emphasize the cost of capital uh, concern because I think particularly in the downturn, uh, I mean, even outside the uh, sort of any, any kind of commodity space in microcaps, you're always concerned, even in a good market, like, is my investment going to go into the market, sell it secondary, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, raise high cost equity capital. And particularly in this market, I mean, it's extremely expensive. But, but we see over time and time again, you know, weaker microcaps, weaker management teams uh, really you know, too often go, you know, just are happy to sell shares, uh, and it's it's sort of besmirches the whole microcap space, right? Where all of us have probably been stung by uh, uh, some investment we had that sold shares at the wrong time, and and particularly in more capital intensive spaces, and I presume you know oil and gas is more capital intensive than some other spaces, even microcaps. Um, that's that's a concern that I would have, and uh, perhaps. You know, and maybe the other the other thing is 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 if you're looking for commodity exposure, you could say, "Well, I can get so much gain even in the mid-cap or or or, or you know or slightly higher space. Why take all this other risk down in, in microcap land?" I mean, this is my, my but I, I'm not a commodities guy at all. But one other thing I would like to add, and Yvonne, you're, you're probably worried about some of these concerns too. Is like the strong dollar uh, is 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 a, is an issue now for some of my investments, and I'm sure it's probably. Uh, an issue for some of your investments, and, and anybody who has any kind of uh, investment in microcaps caps uh, that probably don't have a strong hedging program, um, they're they're probably exposed to to uh, you know for a lot of foreign currency risk that other larger companies may not be. Uh, so that's that's something to be concerned about because the dollar is really ripping higher, and it's it's uh, uh, it's really an amazing thing to see.
2: Yeah, I would actually think the stronger dollar impacts larger caps more than smaller caps because they tend to be more interna- you know, more global in nature of the bigger companies than small companies. Um, but clearly, they're they're yeah, they're not yeah. As they're not as sophisticated at hedging it out. But that's just it's not just hedging; it's everything. You know, management teams right. of small companies in general are going to be worse than management teams of Fortune five hundred companies. They obviously can afford to pay less. They're not going to have as many harvard mbas not that that's the end-all be-all of management team but like they're going to have you know more people who um have kind of gotten there through maybe politics and not, not that that doesn't exist in, in, in large cap companies but you know have gotten there without really understanding you know what their whack is and how to deploy capital and um and what the right thing to do is for shareholders And may not care as much about shareholders right i think if you like in general if you open the proxy of most companies in the S&P 500 i think nowadays you would find like a total shareholder return metric in there uh, boards that try to hold the larger you know uh, companies management teams accountable to the share price uh, i think smaller gaps, you know it's 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 a crapshoot you might get a board that doesn't care about the stock price you might get a management team that doesn't care about the stock price you might get a border management team that have no idea what to do to get the stock to go up. So um, I think there's a higher cost to cut, and there's just more business risk. Smaller businesses, by definition, just have more business yeah. risk,
1: right? I, I'd be curious, Josh, in, in your own whether you're actually seeing opportunities in you know since the dollar is kind of strong, uh, you know, particularly in a sort of micro cap or smaller cap spaces. Are you seeing opportunities uh, in you know in other in other in other countries, whether it's Canada or Sweden or or other Other regions that put maybe uh, you know that have been very much beat up, Uh, but sometimes you get some very interesting companies, particularly in Sweden. I think these days or 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 the Nordics.
3: Um, all all, all I mean, I own a bunch of uh, EMPs and service companies in Canada, and there's been a tremendous if they're not. Hedged on their oil production. Um, their oil and gas is actually selling for a large premium in local dollars versus what US producers are getting in local US dollars. So Canadian producers right now might be getting, if WTI is like 97, they might be getting 125 or something Canadian dollars. For their light oil, you know, minus a differential, minus whatever, but companies here have to pay differentials too. So um, and, and there was a moment where with the dollar versus Canadian dollar differential, which, which wasn't as extreme. Uh, a month ago, but it was still pretty wide. There was a moment where Canadian producers were getting 150 dollars a barrel for their oil um, in in local Canadian dollars. So, so there's a, a detriment from oil demand sort of worldwide from the dollar being stronger, but there is a benefit for local producers to the extent that their input costs are at least partially denominated in local currency, and then once they uh, are running, if you don't. Count the initial capex. Like, if you buy something that's not going to invest a lot, uh, where there's not a lot of drilling or whatever to do, uh, then there's it's just a question of like how much of the operating costs are denominated in local currency versus how much are sort of dependent on steel or some other sort of global commodities that are dollar denominated. So yeah, it's actually been, I think it's underappreciated and it's kind of this weird thing where you try to tell pe- telling people, Hey, these guys have this extra benefit. And they just, they're like, Hey, are you Canadian? It's like, no, I just like money. <laughs> but, you
2: know. Yeah. I, um, I haven't really made new investments based off of, uh, based off of the FX moves. I mean, I'm cognizant of how they impact some of uh, my businesses, but it hasn't really been a driver of uh, any investment decisions for me, other than, you know, the understanding how it impacts the existing portfolio, if that makes
1: sense. Are you, are you spending more time looking at existing names or, or small, you know, like, like starter positions you had in your portfolio, maybe bringing those up? Or are you hunting more, in, like, totally new names?
2: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time underwriting and re-underwriting existing positions just constantly uh, this year. It's definitely where I've spent a lot of time. I am looking at a lot of new ideas as well. Um, but, you know, I think it's... You, you can't get hurt by something you don't own, right? You can miss... You, you could have foregone gains, but, like, things that... And and and, and things that are down, you, you know, you you could, to your point, like, in a market where everything is down together, you could, in theory rotate out of something that's down for the for, for reasons that are rational into things that are down for reasons that are irrational. So I've definitely re-underwritten you know, the entire portfolio. I've shifted capital out of names that I think are down for uh, rational reasons into names that I think are down for less rational reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, I continue to always look for new ideas. But I think uh, I found that during downturns, I just constantly am – Catching up with existing management teams, looking and you know, at, at credit docs and making sure I'm comfortable with the leverage and making sure I'm comfortable with what a downside earnings looks like and what I think a downside multiple looks like and just staying on top of the businesses, which you know there's new information every day out there about one of your one of your companies, usually. So um. uh,
0: that's that's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, hey Jason, same question. Can we throw that same question back at you? You know, are you are you looking, are you hunting for new stuff or mostly you know, just checking in on. Uh, on
1: I mean, it, I, think it's, it's, I think it's a mix. Uh, and one of the, the, I think the dangers of uh, maybe, you know, coming out of a market that was, uh, uh, you know, fairly valued or perhaps, you know, some names are a little, let's say, above valued. Is that, you know, you, you tend to sort of lower your quality standards right before, you know, like a bear market, right? And then you're looking at, at sort of names you probably wouldn't have considered five years ago, but you're looking at them a year ago those names drop down and suddenly you're looking like, oh, the name I was considering has dropped down 40, 50%. You know what? You shouldn't really even be thinking about that name in this market. Uh, and I think that's 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 one thing you probably, you know, investors should should uh, should consider. But, you know, my, my feeling is, is I like to have like just tiny little small positions in a number of names, like, you know, minor league players uh, and then bring them up to the major leagues, right? So I, I'm very cognizant of the risk of taking someone just, I don't know, an investment I've never just just started to look at. It looks kind of sexy in a bear market. right? You put it into the portfolio at a a decent percentage and you really haven't really underwritten it very well. You don't really know it very well. It's probably a a much lower risk to take a small name, bring it up, you know it better. Uh, I think that's the better way to go. So I'm kind of reluctant to take on completely new names uh,
3: in a bear market. Got it. Interesting. Josh, same question. Yeah. Well, so, so I want to talk about this, but there's I, I wanted to follow up on the feedback from, from Jason and your own on, on small cap uh, discounts and, and micro cap discounts, because it's it's th- those are great pushbacks. One of the things that happened in oil and gas was that almost any company that was inclined towards that or that wasn't extremely well-governed and extremely well-capitalized went bankrupt. And so um, We're in this scenario where there are a couple of companies that have behaved not so great, let's say over the last 18 months or so. There were a couple of companies where they gave themselves a lot of stock or did insider deals to get through COVID. And so those are hard for me to own. And then there's a few that have done highly dilutive deals uh, for various reasons that don't make a lot of sense as an outsider. But in many cases, if not most, the companies have either partially or fully deleveraged. So financially, they're less risky. Um, They've all cut their operating costs substantially. And so there's there's this sort of effect, and maybe it's that the small cap oil names are different than the broader small caps, maybe because there was this long down cycle. My bet is that some of the other commodity producers are more similar to the extent that they're producers and not exploration companies. Um, but... They, they don't really, I don't think it would be appropriate to characterize them with some of those same things. And in terms of management, I don't know. I mean, I'm not convinced that the management at the large cap or mid to large caps in general in oil and gas are any better than the management at the small to mid caps. Like I know in many cases, both you know people at, at all levels at, at these various companies, and it's not obvious that they're better. And in some cases, some of the SMID caps are like owner operators who might actually be measurably better than the sort of career management people at the sort of larger caps that have been around for a hundred years. So, so it is interesting. Maybe there is this reason for small caps to be cheap generally, and then smaller cap oil and gas, which I would argue shouldn't be as, as discounted. Maybe there's some discount appropriate, but if they're delevered and if they're appropriately managed And if they're behaving in a manner that's strategic, where they're deleveraging and then returning capital and not spending irrationally or growing for the sake of growth, maybe they're getting sort of this small to large discount in line with the market, but not necessarily appropriately. And sure, the stocks can trade down a lot, right? So I think the the market mechanism that you guys were talking about is very relevant. I mean, we saw it this morning where there were some small cap oil names down 11% and there were others down 3%. And it's like, okay, well, what's the difference? And I know them really well and they're, they're <laughs> like, Names that were almost identical except, you know, different shareholder base. And so, you know, to me, like you guys were saying, amazing opportunity, right? I sold some of uh, one thing that was down a little and bought something that was down a lot where I, I have a strong view on the assets and people. Um, but it is, it's just really. I just didn't want to leave that because I thought that was really interesting feedback, interesting perspective. Um, And I do wonder to some extent if in other sectors, to the extent that this will be a prolonged downturn um, in various other sectors, in small cap, if there will be this sort of bifurcation where the weaker names um, go under and the stronger names end up being really investable, um, and it's not something I've spent time on, but just hearing that feedback, that kind of sounds like... Oil and gas in 2015 or 2016, sort of two years into what ended up being a six or so year, year downturn. And then in terms of uh, you know cycling out of names or whatever, I mean it's a little different because I am sector focused, um, but I don't really have a strong preference for companies I own stock in. Um, I'm a little less likely if there was a there have been a couple of companies that have gone public through either SPACs or IPOs or whatever in the last few months. In upstream, and then a few also sort of on midstream and services. And you know, I'm a little less likely to invest in them, but it's possible to appropriately diligence them. Uh, for me, it's more about just tracking my assessment of current valuation uh, from a liquidation value perspective, from a discounted cash flow perspective, uh, and then comparing that to peers and just trying to own things that are well-run. That I think are likely to grow their value at the maximum uh, discount and then also avoid taxes.
1: Josh, by the way, you don't have to like saying that you want to comment on like my pushback. You can just say that guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. You know, stay in your lane, paint protection boy. You know, no just I thought <laughs> I thought no, it was no, great. No, I'm just joking. Right.
3: The, the the point of this is to learn and to engage, right? Yeah, it's not exactly. like it's not like Twitter exactly. where you just like la la la, whatever. Um you uh, know, it's, it's, uh, it's good. Uh, I, I appreciate it, and it's really it's 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 interesting, right? It's like not something that I had really thought enough about, and it's great to get your guys' perspective.
0: For sure, I like I like Jason's new name for himself, Paint Protection Boy. I think that's pretty good. I hope that yeah, sticks. Yeah, pretty good. I hope yeah, that sticks. Yeah. So, uh, you know, another topic I wanted to ask because you know that the fact that we're in small microcap land, you know, that means we're all talking with management pretty often. Um, I'm talking to a lot of management teams, and the the, the main thing that I've been seeing across the board is one is basically MA is more or less dried up. You know, like deals are just not getting done. And the focus now, especially if they're revenue generating is just really on revenues. Like that's really been just the core, like head down, we just need to do this right now. You know, so I'm curious, of you know, what you guys have been hearing, um, you know, talks with some of your management, you know, some of those channel checks and stuff like that. Um, you want to start us off there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually want to, pull something up if I could find it quickly. Uh, I asked one of my management teams actually last week uh, about M&A. I said, hey, you know, things are probably getting cheaper. Are you guys getting more excited about the M&A pipeline? And his exact answer was a weak market should help M&A, the M&A price and pipeline in theory. However, sellers generally think they have a pot of gold to sell and are hesitant to lower pricing and often will delay their sell decision until the economy recovers, thus lowering the pipeline. I think in periods of volatility, um, you know, sellers think that they, they want to sell off LTM EBITDA and buyers want to buy off NTM. Uh, so trailing, you know, last 12 months versus next 12 months. And, and the views of what the, la- the next 12 months look like could be very different uh, between the buyer and the seller as well. And then same with multiples, you know, sellers might be anchored to last year's multiples and, and buyers are looking at current market multiples in terms of what they want to pay. I think when, you know, there's a lot of volatility, bid ask spreads just widen in general, and that leads to less trading activity for market makers and less M&A. M um, and So, you know, I think uh, I try to stick to, with companies that have good balance sheets and could really capitalize on a weak economy, if there are distressed sellers, but with the understanding that you know the, deal, the the typical deal activity might might slow down until you have a sustained downturn or until you know there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, at, w- at which point you know the buyer might be willing to stretch a little bit more because uh, they feel like that the end is near. Um, but um, yeah, look if if M A slows down and your companies are generating cash and they're growing, uh, they could buy back stock. They can build up cash on the balance sheet to wait out until sellers are willing to come around to it or until the economy recovers and then the sellers come back. So um, that's kind of how I, I'm, I'm doing the portfolio in terms of MA right now. Absolutely.
0: Uh, I'm going to jump to Josh. Josh, what do you think on this?
3: Uh, so, uh, I think, so again, oil and gas, it seems to be operating in a slightly different cycle right now. Uh, one of my company's very small position was bought out for a premium this morning. So that was exciting. And if I'm, it looks like I'm looking down, I've actually been in the process of cycling out of that name. Um, it was a stock for stock deal at a 25% premium and the buyer's stock is down 15%. Um, and the seller's stock is up like 7%. So it's a little bit of an ARB, uh, which I'm not going to stick around for probably. And so I've been in the process of like literally selling a name that's been up anywhere between 2 and 10% or 2 and 8% today and buying a name that's been down anywhere from 4 to 10% today. Um, so, so it is happening. Um, premium deals are just starting to come back. Um, but but what, what I saw was it was really hard for companies to do deals in a downturn, and it was a lot easier once things had sort of bottomed and then started to recover. And so my guess is that we'll see that sort of, to the extent that there is this sort of broader downturn economically and in the stock market, uh, I think there will be that sort of bid ask like um, like the others were, were saying. And I think that um, we'll see as as things start to recover, it gets easier for a seller to accept. Uh, something uh, even if it, the buyer stock has, you know, inflated to some extent, it, it just gets easier once they get their number. Um, and we've seen that a lot, I think, with uh, private equity-backed companies and oil and gas selling to uh, public companies, where it kind of doesn't matter how much the public company's stock has gone up. It seems uh, the seller just wants to get their sort of uh, nameplate, their their sort of ask number hit. In some cases entirely with equity, in some cases, equity plus cash or whatever, but or assumed debt. Um, but but it does seem like that really helps clear the market. So maybe we'll see less MA uh like you guys are talking about on the way down and then more as as things bottom out and then start to to recover. So that's what we saw for oil and gas. And it is it is helpful, I guess, for me to see that deals are still happening, because to some extent that's a signal, at least from a management and board perspective, that oil and gas execs aren't really expecting this to be a big downturn in the industry.
1: Got it. Jason, what about you? I mean, I, I think you made an interesting interesting statement, Robert, at the end of, your, uh, end of the question. You said, you're talking to management teams and the focus on generating revenue, uh, always a good thing. Uh, and you also have some other microcap management teams which are focused on generating profits, always also always a good thing. Uh, but there's a lot of management teams in microcaps don't, who don't generate much revenue or aren't generating much profits, right? Uh, and un- unfortunately, I'm sure none of us have those companies in our, in our portfolio, uh, but uh, some other microcap investors do. And what I'm, I'm concerned about are people seeing, and those, some of those names have really been destroyed, right? And I, I think there's a risk of people just loading themselves up with a lot of destroyed companies, uh, perhaps they're trying to you know, find a way to make up what they lost. Uh, and I think that's very, it's very dangerous. So uh, I, I would be concerned with with investing in, in microcap uh, uh, companies that don't have a very clear pathway to, they got to have a clear pathway to profitability or they got ready to be profitable at this point in time, particularly going into a, uh, what could be a downturn um, and, and uh, because Otherwise, you're just going to find yourself getting diluted, or find yourself with a uh, very generous, uh, you know, carry forward tax loss. going into next year.
0: So if I'm re- so if I'm reading the tea leaves right now, you know, some of those growth tech names, uh, you know, that. Or maybe still in prototype phase, or maybe just rolling out pilot programs and stuff like that. You know, you might want to. I mean, for how about let's let's try and help those. Let's 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 turn this around. For those that may have exposure to some of those companies and believe in the tech, maybe believe in management, they've done it before. This is their next big thing. You know, what are some things that they can do at least to protect themselves, other than just straight up like, hey, you got to lose or sell it. You know, what, what are some of the channel checks that they can do to make sure that they're, you know, at least checking with those companies in a way in which they're seeing, oh, okay, they're, they're doing what maybe that you would expect or hope they would do in times like these.
1: Jason? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's very tough because, you know, a lot of management teams are, are natural optimists or they have an incentive <laughs> to be optimistic or present optimism, Right. You never call up a management team and ask, you know, how are things done? You know, going. It's right. It's always if it's bad, it's challenging. They never say we're going to close the door next week, right? Uh, you know, do you want to buy some cheap furniture? Um, I, I I think you got to see if you can. Not all not all companies you can really do like very good channel checks, right? Some are just more difficult to check. Uh, but if you can see whether, uh, you know, what they say is basically. You know, the timeline they gave you is more or less accurate, right? Um, you know, there are companies out there that they can survive 18 months, but they can't survive 24 months without you know conditions really improving or or their product starting to really take off. Uh, and, and that's a that's a very dangerous situation to be in right now. And like we, we said earlier, I mean so many companies, I mean like your own put so put so wonderfully, right? A lot of companies are down rationally and you can move to Investments which are down significantly uh, for irrational reasons. So you know, don't be afraid to take a loss. It's 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 not personal. It's just business, right? And that's the uh, that's the, the famous line, right? So uh, uh, it's,
0: it's a, I just rewatched all three. or well, uh, just rewatched two of the, the two of them the yeah. other day. So uh, yeah. By the way, everybody, should I, I, I I
2: do know. I Look, I think there's some investments that are jockey bets for people. Right. I think mm-hmm. in general. If you're making a jockey bet, you still better like the underlying business and asset. Um, you know, I think Warren Buffett has said that uh, you should buy companies that any idiot can run, uh, because eventually if there will be an idiot running it um, at some point. And I think that's—I think it's accurate. I think if if you're buying a speculative company um, that has no revenue, no profits, purely on the prospect of future revenue and profits, it is a much, much riskier investment, and it should be sized appropriately. And, um, you know, your return expectations should be extremely high if it works, because if it doesn't work, you're going to lose a lot of money. And if you, you know, if you only double your money on those types of positions, uh, and you do a handful of them, realistically, you're going to lose a very big chunk of the handful that don't work. And you're probably not going to recover your losses with the handful that did. And so, I just think it should be size small. You shouldn't be doing it for uh, low returns. You should be doing it for high returns. And the underlying business is the most important thing. That's what you're buying. That's what you have an ownership stake and interest in, not in management, right? You're buying a piece of paper that represents an ownership interest in the underlying business. Um, and to Jason's point, management teams have every incentive to paint the rosiest picture possible, even when things aren't going according to plan, right? It's, And it might not even be malicious, although sometimes it is nefarious, but like, it could just be that they have a mortgage that they need to pay. And if they, you know, lose the confidence of their investors, they're out of a job and they can't pay their mortgage. And, you know, they're getting paid to, uh, you know, make sure that there's a bid for the stock and that they could raise capital and they need to fund this loss making operation. And I think the board and, and other shareholders expect them to do their job, which is to paint the rosiest picture out there. So Um, You know, sometimes they're crossing the line and and committing fraud and, and lying and and saying things that they know are knowingly false, but sometimes they're just being optimistic because that's what they're incentivized to do. And maybe they somewhat believe it. uh, or Maybe they just think it's going to take a little bit longer, but no harm, no foul. Um, But I I do think your return expectations should be much higher for those. And at the end of the day, all you own is a stake in the business, not in the management team. Very
0: good.
3: Josh? Yeah, so I guess the equivalent of that would be uh, at least sort of in the area I'm most focused on would be sort of exploration companies where they're not really generating much revenue or cash flow. And it, it is wild in, in both directions where there are sometimes really promising opportunities that people have done it a lot before. And Getting in early enough, and like Yaron was saying, you know, you really, I think you have, you got to size it well. You have to really diligence it. You have to have a real shot at a 10x or something like that. And then, you know, it is remarkable how many still companies with. No revenue will get crazy. I mean, it, it's not even evaluation because they have no revenue or cash flow, but it's like, hey, we have this big land position, and here's this 10-year-old report. And ignore the like smart industry people who sold the asset for nothing recently. Um, we're we've got this. And you know, and in many cases, it's the team itself like has done this before and it's been a zero. And it's like, you know, ignore that. <laughs> oh, here's these new guys who are good. And like, I'm actually describing, I think, three things that are going on right now like three different situations. And like, you know, to the point where I've occasionally commented on them by name, which I won't hear. And um, there is like thousands or hundreds of people very mad at me for having done that. And that's also an indicator, right? Like you should be able to say basically anything reasonable and fact-based about any company and not elicit insane emotional responses. So I think that's like a good criteria too. If you find yourself feeling very uh, strongly, um, based on narrative based on people based on things other than sort of data that you know is from a reasonable source that you know has aligned incentives with you you um, I think it's good to sort of be careful, and then I think, especially sort of uh, from an oil and gas perspective, we, we went through this long downturn, and there were many times where you could, if you owned things, and I made this mistake occasionally, I would own something with less cash flow, and I could buy something with more cash flow, and the upside prospects were similar. Like there wasn't really a good argument for owning the thing that was riskier with the same upside as the thing that was less risky. So um, you know, it's like a, a couple of these exploration things too. It's like okay, you can own that. Uh, zero, you know, infinite valuation because zero cash flow, or and and you know your upside is X number of barrels in the ground, or you can own something at like two times cash flow with a bunch of barrels on the ground, and maybe it's fewer barrels, but your odds of actually getting those barrels are way higher because there's cash flow, and you know, you might or might not be as excited about the teams, but at least. There's a business there and there's cash flow there, and you have an idea on what the returns are, and there's way less technology risk, and so on. So, I imagine that's probably generalizable to some extent. It doesn't mean that you don't get exposure to things with huge potential upside. It's just, you know, if everything falls, maybe you own the things that generate more cash flow and have less risk. And if you are going to own them, I think. To own point, I think you got to be real careful, have to have a real high potential return and uh, size it in a way that you don't blow up if you, you own something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of sure. I will,
3: yeah,
1: I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go on, you bro.
2: I was just going to say, like, I think it's given the environment we're in, right, and financial conditions are getting tighter um, and the Fed might keep tightening them until inflation rolls. I think it's very important to, to just understand whether your company controlled its own destiny and and have higher return expectations for companies that do not control their own destiny, right? If you are, um, I would say the riskiest proposition is a company that needs access to capital markets to raise primary capital, new debt or new equity to fund the business. That is riskiest. If you need that um, and capital markets are shut when you need it, Effectively, going to have to hand the keys over to someone else who's willing to put up the very expensive cash at that point. Um, you know, then a little bit less risky, but still risky, is uh, someone who needs access to capital markets to just roll an existing capital structure, right? Near term maturities or covenant breaches if EBITDA goes down too much or cash flow goes down too much. Um, and then, um, obviously, it's companies you know that generate cash and, and have strong balance sheets that. Are probably the safest from you know, a funding standpoint. So those are the ones that really control their own destiny. Um, and I think it's really important to differentiate between them, especially in an environment where you're not sure what the economy is going to do over the next you know, six to 12 months.
1: Jason, you are going to say? Yeah, I was just going to just add one, one point. I think Josh brought up a very sort of uh, interesting phenomenon that we all see, which is that uh, you know, you can criticize a name and uh, especially if you do it on Twitter or other places, uh, other, other, other boards, uh, sometimes you'll have these fanboys come and, and, and you know, like hit you, right? And, and better investors don't take it personally if someone criticizes something they, they own, right? In some ways, if it's an intelligent, intelligent criticism, you're, you should be drawn but drawn to it, right? You should want to explore it more. Uh, and i was just going to say that I think in, like in a bear market, uh, you know, probably the biggest risk are your own personal weaknesses. It's not inflation, it's not interest rates. Uh, it's just your own personal behavioral biases uh, that, that, that sometimes have not been tested in the bull market, but are likely to be tested in a bear market. Whether it's a desire to, to over concentrate or, or, or perhaps be too diversified, or, or it's, a, it's a desire to, to always have positive returns every year, and therefore you take whatever risks to generate positive returns. Or, 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 it's just a, uh, you know, just a, 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 a desire always to compare yourself to other people's returns, even though they have different skill sets, right? I mean, uh, really, you know, which we I probably should all be studying is just our, our own selves, just trying to figure out, like, you know, what are my weaknesses that I really need to take take care of and to fix, or to watch out for, you know, if you know, in, in a in a in a longer bear market, like you know, the twenty COVID bear market that was so quick right? I mean, you really, before you blinked, it it was a lay. But uh, I mean, I know a lot of people just thinking back to that, you know, 2000 to 2002, right? They just, you know, people sometimes can't take pain for an extended period of time. And that's when you really get into danger, right? Uh, And okay, even if you underperform a little bit in the bear market, number one priority is to survive to get to the next bull market, right? And uh, if you blow up, in a spectacular fashion, or really underperform in spectacular fashion, it's really hard to come back from that. Hundred oh, percent.
0: Somebody want to add add something to that, or uh, no. uh,
2: It's very well said. I, I agree. Surviving is, I think, the most important thing, and that you know that includes not having too much leverage yourself, and not owning businesses that have too much leverage, you know, on, on their part.
1: For sure I mean look at look, look at the crypto boys right look I mean this it's a different space right but look at the crypto boys right and how much watch out Jason
2: they're gonna <laughs> you're unleashing you're gonna unleash the fury
0: and that's it for today's <laughs> podcast <I> really- <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but just, I'll, I'll just leave it there just look at them just in, uh, draw your own conclusions we will just say that look at them and draw your own conclusions
3: so, so one one thing I'll share so again like this oil cycle seems to be playing out slightly differently and it's scary because maybe everything falls another 50% in line with the rest of the market here or not. I mean, I I like the supply demand setup, but there's a reality, which is the market can do things that maybe aren't so fundamentally supported for long periods of time. Um, One thing that I did that I think was really helpful and was really hard and I think is worth sort of thinking about for this cycle and the broader market is I somehow managed and I, I can't really explain it well, I somehow managed... After COVID, right, where like oil went negative to position where when there was this vaccine and where the oil stocks started to recover to be able to own things that could do really well. And and, and that was really hard. To do, and I, I can't fully explain it. Like I just, I don't have a good. I just, you know, think think it's relevant for for this. If you can somehow get through the bear market without being so scarred that you're not able to capitalize on it, many oil and gas investors just missed the whole thing. Many were setting up alternative energy vehicles at like the historically worst time in history to do it. A lot of the private equity funds did that and like took billions of dollars in and blew them up from like November of twenty twenty to you know June of twenty twenty one. I mean it was just absolutely insane seeing it. But so almost everyone missed it. Don't they you
1: criticize buy- my alts, man. Don't you criticize my
3: alts. I feel like I can Well, I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> so, So, and that was like super, you know, like no one wanted to talk to you from an allocated perspective. If you weren't doing that, it's like, what's your plan, what's your whatever. And, you know, many firms I think embarrass themselves by jumping in. It's not that I have a problem with doing it. It's that I have a problem with doing it at the bottom of your sector and at the top of the other sector that's adjacent that you jump into. And like, you know, there's lots of deleted stuff and lots of, oh, hey, we're like rebranding back to oil and gas or whatever. Um, but I think I think there is this, this importance, both I think financially, like uh, Jason and I were talking about, as well as psychologically, to be there for when the turn happens. And again, it's impossible to time that perfectly, but to be able to have meaningful exposure to whatever it is that you're doing, such that you benefit when it goes up. And if you're not there, then you can't benefit when it goes up. And so it's like kind of that Peter Lynch, like, don't try to time a recession because you might lose way more money trying to time it than you would actually lose if you experienced it. And then the the pair to that is just to make sure to have the exposure. And it's it's like it's, I guess it's kind of this like cliche from brokers, right? Like, oh, like the 10 best days in the market represent 80% of the market return. But I mean, it's a cliche, but it's also true. And so however it is that it's possible to position to be able to have that exposure, I think matters a lot because it's the difference in between sort of it having been painful and just kind of sucking versus it being painful and then it being worth the pain. Uh, So anyway, again, I can't explain how I did it, just somehow managed to not have been so damaged through negative oil and through insane drawdowns. I mean, PSE, the small cap index, I think it was down 95% or something from its high in 2014 to its low during covid Something like that, right? Just absolutely.
2: How do you sleep at night, knowing that you're you set yourself up to profit from the demise of the earth? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well,
3: <laughs> I mean, we have we have Sri Lanka starving right now, and so it's. I'm a kidding. Question, I'm kidding. You're you know, kidding. Right, right. no, no, no. I get it. Right? It's like it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough thing uh, from a lot of perspectives. But you know, the the biggest thing I think is not the. I think mean, you can kind of convince yourself of various things. Uh, morally in terms of... I was know, kidding. <laughs> no, I... I got it. But, but yeah, it's really... I think it's really hard to do that. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the return is just from surviving and being able to have the exposure um, for, for a bull market. Bull markets start somewhere. And, you know, if you are in cash and you like try to time it and whatever, and you miss it, it can be hard. You know, a lot of people missed the last sort of 10 year plus equity bull market because they were scared from the things that happened in the financial crisis. And, you know, I think there, there's a lot of risk in, in trying to be that person versus trying to uh, understanding that the market does go up over time and that there's a lot of rewards in capitalism from optimism and just trying to find things that will allow you to survive, but then also give you market or better exposure over a full cycle.
1: I think one other thing we have to sort of watch out for is that, you know, there's a tendency to be like the, the, the accidental macro investor, right? We see all these, you know, front page news on inflation Man, or interest rates.
0: Literally took the next topic out of my mouth. I love it. All right, go. Sorry. I didn't you know, mean to no, you know, All
1: these, all these people who, you know, you see all these, all these headlines, uh, you know, going to on, on Twitter, there's all these comments, everyone's bringing up, you know, the 1973 bear market, or you know, like uh, or or or, uh, or, or like ninety percent interest rates, right? And and uh, you know, people who are very sophisticated, uh, sort of, you know, you know, equity investors are, are like can sometimes fall for the most unsophisticated macro interpretation, and then change their whole like equity investment approach just to fit this this naive macro, you know, viewpoint. Uh, and so it's just something that something to sort of, uh, you know, watch out for. Um, and, and, you know, and, and honestly, I mean, it's, it's and we know this, we all know this. It's not easy to predict like macro. It's not easy to predict what's going on. I mean, just a couple of years ago, like in what, how COVID, like right, all the experts, I mean, who, who predicted it and how it was going to play out, right? And, and now we're listening to these same experts, you know, predict what's going to happen about inflation. Or, or interest rates. And we're all like nodding our heads and then giving a like to someone who, you know, who, uh, who generates some like JP Morgan shot. So, uh, and, I, and by
2: the way, the, the macro forecasters sound more confident and more convicted and more convincing after they're right, which is probably the exact wrong time to be listening to them because nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems, but after a strong run, and a lot of investors are prone to feeling overconfident after a strong run, um, I think you know when the market's down 20%, it's a less attractive short definitionally well, than before it was down 20%, but bears might sound more convicted. And when the market's up 20%, you know, it's, it's over a short period of time, it's less attractive as a long, uh, but bulls sound more convicted and more confident. And if you were on the sidelines, you might get more drawn to the argument after that move uh, when it's probably a worse risk reward at that point. Um, so I just, I think it's very, to, to Jason's former point, you know, just know your behavioral biases, um, have a strategy, stick to it. Um, don't let your emotions override that strategy at the exact wrong time. Um, because that's, that's the surest way to, uh, to have bad, you know, through cycle performance.
0: But one one quick question on this, to be fair, because you know so much information is being thrown at us, so much market news and stats and this and that is being thrown thrown at us, and it's sometimes very difficult to separate between the noise and what you should actually be listening to. But as a way, but I want to ask the question like this: You know, how much, even with all that, and still they should be to listening understand- to your
1: podcast, Robert. They should be listening to you. Without question,
0: you know, duh. if they listen to just our podcast, they're my podcast, it would you know, they should only be investing in micro cap stocks. Uh, that is not investment advice. but um <laughs> but um but but in all seriousness, like because there is some level of like, all right, you probably should be listening to some of the noise. You know, you should be understanding some of the things that are going on out there. But clearly for probably the majority of it, you, you know, like, I don't know how much more thought pieces I need to see about this Elon and, and Twitter deal. But uh, but but it but in all seriousness, you know, how how much should you really be paying attention versus like, all right, you can push this to the side. Yeah, the average
2: person should not be paying. Honestly, the average person should have a strategy that's easy to stick to, which is over time, I'm going to own equities while well, my duration is long. And as I get closer to retirement. I become less overweight equities and this is a generality not investment advice obviously if the s&p was selling for 50 times earnings you know that it would probably be a little different but if you're able to buy the s&p at 15 times or 20 times earnings and you have a time horizon of decades and you're young and you're looking for retirement like you really should just stash it and average over time averaging over time and and if you want to follow the minutia and be in the weeds i think it's important to have a strategy. If you're, if you're going to panic, you might, you better panic early, right? You can't panic after the market's down 20%. Then you're, if you get out then, you are locking in losses. And if you don't get back in in time, those losses could become permanent losses. So if you're going to have a strategy of owning equities for long periods of time, then you should not touch that regarding, you know, regardless of the minutiae. And if you're going to follow the minutiae and you want to panic every time things start to sound bad when we're at all-time highs, you'll probably have you know, lower returns, but at least probably I would think positive returns if you get out of the way every time we're at all. You know, we're at all time highs. Um, but if you're going to panic when we're down twenty percent every time, I think realistically you're probably going to have negative through cycle returns. And then the other thing I'll say is that yes, if you got the inflation call right and you got out of the way in equities, you did. You're doing better this year. But I will take my chances with my portfolio over the next 10 years, if the if the current inflation sustains, uh, and I would take my chances over a 10-year period of my portfolio versus just staying in cash and and and, and thinking the S&P or whatever is going to go to 10 times earnings and the earnings are going to get crushed. I mean, if, if you buy a company for 10 times unlevered earnings and it, it's flat in five years, you've generated 50% of your enterprise value in cash, right? And after 10 years, you've taken your money out and you're still on the business. If the business has... A reason to exist and pricing power and a good management team, like over time, you will protect your purchasing power, maybe not in any one given year. But if you are sitting on cash, it sounds dumb to say now because cash was the better place to be this year. But but if you are sitting on cash over a decade with high inflation, you're guaranteed to lose purchasing power. So um, that those are kind of my, you know, uh, two pieces of, of thoughts.
3: So so, um, I I have two thoughts. Well, three thoughts. One, uh, I I completely agree your own. And I think uh, just, you know, gets back to that sort of like sort of cliche broker thing, which is just if you try to time the market, you're going to miss the things uh that give you that you you miss a lot of the magic of the stock market which is compounded returns over time that are better than most other asset classes on a risk adjusted basis and so if you try to that your attempt to do it and others attempts to do it are part of why that excess return exists for that asset class so that'd be one comment um another is i think like you were saying also the um there is this tendency to kind of find people that like sound good and have been right recently. And it's way easier kind of oddly to do that than it is to, you know, reread margin of safety by Seth Klarman to like reread all of Buffett's letters and like notice what he's doing or, you know, whatever. There's this amazing resource of brilliant billionaires who don't make themselves that available, but you can find their stuff. And like, I'd way rather bet on like what Buffett's doing or what Icon's doing or what Carmen's doing than bet on what J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or X, Y, Z, like guru person of macro person of the moment, like to the extent that I'm making a multi-year sort of bet and that I'm trying to, be able to be there for my returns to compound. So I think like there are these great resources, they're often more boring, right? But like boring maybe translates to excess return. And so, um, you know, just easy to, to, it's easy to access the things that are exciting or sexy or that sound good because that person called this thing that was improbable. And it's hard, I think, to attribute appropriate returns. And also like a lot of these strategists and stuff, it's really hard to find, you um, records of their other calls and, I mean, I see this with oil and gas where there's lots of supposed experts who are just terrible and, like, most of their calls are wrong, but, like, they delete them or they, like, make them really hard to find and they don't run funds so there's not, like, a return to identify um, or so on and so I think uh, I think that sort of, that stuff matters a lot. Um, and then I guess just the last thing is if you can find businesses in whatever industry that can compound over time and that are well run and that are available at a reasonable price, um, you know, to the extent that one is not just purely allocating passively to outperforming investment fund managers or just purely to passive uh, indexes, um, it makes sense if you can find something that's, that seems likely to compound over time um, and has reasons beyond uh, that 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 you can diligence and identify, I, I think holding those things over time and being able to add to them from cash flow or whatever. I mean that does seem to be the strategy that Buffett and others employ. And if you look at it, I mean I did some stuff on Buffett's like recent purchases of oil and gas equities, which were actually quite unusual for him over the last like sixty five years, and tried to elucidate sort of what it meant that he was investing so much in oxy and Chevron uh, recently but it doesn't have to be any particular sector you can find these great insights from brilliant people who are so fantastically successful that they are billionaires often from their compounding of their own investments um, and so you know I think I think there's just a huge advantage to that over the listening to most other people. Um, so, you know, here we are not billionaires talking about this stuff. I don't, I don't 100% know about you guys, but I, I'm definitely not. Um, and I, I just, I think there is a lot of available wisdom that we, we often overlook.
1: Uh, Bobby, I, I would be remiss if I went to one of your podcasts without mentioning Expel, right? It's, it's just, I have to mention it, Right, I, I You, you it, just
0: can't, right? You can't. Help I, I just can't
1: go through a podcast without mentioning it. Okay, so look, you know what a moron and I bought it in 2000.
2: What, what a you moron, call yourself protection boy.
1: Yeah, yeah. What a moron I must have been because I bought it uh, in 2016 after the first hike of a nine hike Fed move. Right, there's a hike in December 2015, another hike in December 2016, and then hikes. Uh, another seven hikes after that, right? So I mean, anybody who's like so focused on interest rates should go back in their portfolio if they, if they own stocks for a number of years and like just ask themselves, like, I mean, how much did you, did you, at what point in time, what part of the, like the interest rate cycle did I make other successful investments, right? And it, a lot of times it, it doesn't, you know, I don't remember like when the interest, you know, what part of the interest rate cycle I made this or that, right? I bought. Like Mastercard in, in 2006, it was like well, one week before I think it was June 21st. One week before the hike on June 29th, right uh, in 2006. Like, oh my God, it went up to five and a quarter percent. You know, extremely high. Uh, it didn't make a difference, right? If you buy the great companies, if you can find you know a good solid investment, you know the all, usually interest rate cycles don't matter too much. You know, there are always you know exceptions to the rule, but uh, I just think there's, there's, so, we're spending so much energy these days as an investing community just looking at, uh, just these, these.
2: I mean, the, the shorter your time horizon, the more you need to catch the right factor and the right sector yeah, at sure, the right
1: sure. time. Right. If you're a trader, I think in general
2: active management has been bullied into shorter and shorter time horizons uh, for a variety of reasons, and I think that it's really hard. There's way less people in the world who are good at jumping from sector to sector profitably and strategy to strategy profitably than there are people who could follow a tried and true strategy of buying good businesses uh, at reasonable valuations and holding onto them for a very long period of time, which is a very simple strategy that has, it's, it's proved to have working for a very long period of time. And, you know, most billionaires have done it through owning a single business for a very long period of time, or, or, or you know, a, a collection of businesses for a very long period of time, and not trading in and out of them. I think Howard Marks, you know, has said that um, something like if if you if you stand at a bus stop, you're gonna catch a bus. Uh, but if you run around from bus stop to bus stop, you might never catch a bus, right? Because you're trying to catch the bus, and then it, you just miss it, and then you run to the next bus stop. Um, you might have to wait a little bit, but like you will catch a bus if you stay at a bus stop. And I think if you have a strategy that has a long duration and you're happy making equity like returns, you have to stick to the strategy. And if and if you were trying to jump from bus stop to bus stop, you better have a really good watch and really good sneakers and be able to run really fast because if you miss it, you might never catch the bus. So, um,
3: it is yeah, funny that you mentioned that uh, because uh, Oak Tree bought a giant amount of oil and gas securities during the downturn and their business is literally (laughs) jumping from one bus stop to the next in order to catch that sort of, and and they have a distress strategy, but I guess like the one, I I completely agree with what you're saying, except that there is a caveat, which is if your strategy is, Hey, you know, find something where there's a, you know, 10 year cycle or 20 year cycle, and it could be similar to, to quality businesses, right. Where maybe you want to own, um, for a while, mostly businesses in a certain sector that are, or you find that like, they tend to be really undervalued in, you know, uh, adult entertainment, or they're really undervalued in, you know, grocery or whatever for some period of time, and there's compounding. Um, But I think, I think like, uh, it is just funny to point out, I mean, Oak Tree is the opposite of that. The extreme where they'll end up with huge exposure in like one or two sectors for a few years because that's where sort of the valuations were. Sort of I,
1: I, I do think that like a company like Oak Tree, though, they have like these opportunity funds, like these supplemental funds, right, which they can tap during moments of distress. They don't have to even hold on or like get those funds from their LPs, right? Like like Op7B, I think they were able to to, uh, to tap during the you know the Great Recession, which allows them in some ways to do. Timing more effectively than than you know mere mortals like us right which in essence have have you know long term capital that we have to do something you know this year next year the year after that, and two or three years before right so one uh, 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 yeah, of the the, the the weird things about like like being in, like an investor right we're always like we have a tendency to like try to ape like buffett and munger uh you know, who are like, you know, like, who are like fantastic quotes, but, you know, you, they have very long and like varied careers. Right. So, uh, you know, you get to try and copy a young Buffett or a young monger who took a lot of risk, you know, it took leverage, or you could to try and copy like the old wise monger who tells you to stay away from, you know, all sorts of debt. Right. Uh, uh, you know, no. I guess we don't want we don't want to get there because these guys are gods. But uh, you know,
3: did you see uh, Daily Journal apparently levered up recently to buy some stuff? So apparently, like they literally put on. But spent decades telling people not to put on portfolio leverage, and they they. Exactly.
1: Went, I saw I some mean,
3: article. They went on margin to go buy some stocks recently. Um, so anyway, it's kind of kind of funny that you mentioned that because I think it's yeah, it's 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 a uh,
1: uh, and and that's one one other thing that you always have to be you know concerned about even though we're all. I'm sure we're we're all people on this on this podcast to do, who do exactly what we say, uh, but honestly, I mean, I know a number of investors who who you know who what they do and what they say is is somewhat different, right? And whether it's it's purposeful or just by accident, uh, it's it's you know it's very easy to give you all the all the great Buffett and Munger uh, and Templeton quotes, right? We all like it's, it's we're kind of like. Uh, like financial Monty Python fans, right? We could just like spit out these uh, these quotes when needed. Uh, but but it, it's it's you know the the actual investing itself. I mean, it's it's simple to explain, hard to do. The danger is always when we fall for you know complex strategies which are impossible to do, right? That's the that's the real danger. And occasionally, we all fall for that.
0: Absolutely. All right. I think I think we we covered quite a bit today. Um, and I, and I, I know you guys are all busy, so I appreciate you taking everyone here, taking the time. So, you know, to wrap up, um, love to hear everyone's final take, I guess, uh, the final take being, you know, how you're positioning yourself for, I mean, I I know some of us here are more long-term focused, but just, you know, even if it's a short answer, but second half of 2022, either your thoughts on things that you're seeing or how you're positioning yourself, you know, just, you know, what are you doing there? So, uh, Josh, let's start with you. And then when you're, of course, people can go and follow you and your website and all that good stuff.
3: Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the U.S. is releasing a lot of oil right now from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that is scheduled to end in October. And so, again, long term view that there's been underinvestment in oil and gas, and that should lead to higher prices and also much higher valuations, especially for the smaller and micro cap producers. Um, and you know, there's a ticking clock. There's only so much time where oil can get released. There, there's a limited quantity of that. And so you know, I think I think that and also the European energy crisis are both things that i'm tracking where there could be a lot less oil available for um consumption and there may be a lot more demand for it uh to replace russian gas and other sorts of sources of energy so um you know again sort of longer term focus but also it should be a really interesting uh, excluding all the other sort of economic uh cycle and interest rate and all the other aspects it should be should be really interesting i'm um, easy to find on twitter or at uh, bisoninterest.com
1: very good, Jason. First of all, if you're annoyed at any of the comments we made about Munger or Buffett or crypto, please email your own name, Mark. Don't contact me. Just email your own. He's the uh, he's the point of contact for any criticism. Uh, but uh, you know, you can find me at you know, Hudson Two Hundred and Fifteen Capital or at at Eight Track One uh, Hundred and Eighty on Twitter. And you know, I'm going to be doing what I always do, right? Which is just uh, look for uh, a few great companies at a. At a Really low price, and you buy them, and then you uh, you hope they go up. Uh, you know, it's it's that's what I do. Uh, not when you say low price. Cost. You mean
2: like five dollars or less a share, or ten
1: dollars <laughs> or less a share? Well, uh, usually fifteen cents or less. You know, Gosh. in Canadians, right? No, but but low. I mean, look. Uh, you know, if you really want the the great gains, I think you do have to sort of you know find companies which are are you know moderate economic returns today, but really superior economic returns tomorrow, you know, superior economic models tomorrow, which is not easy to do. Right. So I just, I just wait and hope to find a couple of them a year or every other years. And, you know, it doesn't change. It doesn't matter whether it's a bear market or bull market, it's easier to do in a bear market. So, uh, there we go.
2: There you go. You're wrong I'm, Some, I'm, uh, you know, similar to, to, uh, to Jason and Josh. I mean, I, um, now, continuing to do it to do what I what I always do, which is reevaluate my positions. Um, you know, compare them to other opportunities that I see in the marketplace, and trying to high grade the portfolio and re-underwrite and really know what I own. Um, you know, I've, I've taken exposure down um, in sectors that I think are more interest rate sensitive uh, in terms of demand, and that are more exposed to inflationary pressures in terms of their costs. Um, and I've, you know, tried uh reallocating that capital towards businesses that I think are getting unfairly punished uh by kind of all these headlines. Um and of course I'm protecting the portfolio by being short, uh paint protection film companies and energy companies. <laughs> um but yeah, that's, uh, that's
1: where's the, where's the end button? How do I leave this? <laughs> <problem>? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's good stuff. And you're wrong, where can people follow you on social media?
2: Uh one main capital is my Twitter handle. Uh the website is onemancapital.com. Uh and my contact info is uh on the website or on Twitter as well. Very good.
0: All right, gents. Thank you so much for joining me today. That was a lot of fun. Uh you know, let's let's all just you know, let's just go away for a couple more weeks, you know, and then we'll, we'll recharge our engines and then just see what craziness happens starting in September. So uh I think with that, I really appreciate you guys joining. It's a lot of fun and uh I'm sure we'll chat again soon. For full disclosure, Jason Hirschman is a shareholder in Expel, Inc. podcast. podcast.